It's probably not often that you wonder what I'm doing in the pulpit, but perhaps you're wondering that today. I am your backup preacher today. Uh, Brad Holmes was supposed to bring us our message, and he is under the weather, so I'm the last-minute switch, and uh, it will cost him. It will cost him. Uh, he has two sermons to preach now instead of one in the future, and uh, so we will, we will have him up here soon, I promise, and no one is more disappointed than I am, I assure you of that. Even a junkyard looks pristine after a freshly fallen snow. Everything is covered in a blanket of white. Where there's an old pile of tires, now there's a gentle white hill. Where there's a front yard of barren grass before, there's a beautiful covering, a, a white blanket. I looked at our pasture yesterday. Oh, it was barren and muddy and weeds. Now, beautiful white. And after a snow, your yard looks just as good as your neighbor's yard, despite the fact that in the spring he'll have a putting green in front of his house. But under the snow, it's all the same, good or bad. Doesn't matter after the snow, does it? Everybody is even. Everybody is equal. It is all the same. It seems to me that after a snow, and I mean a, a really good snow, it seems as if God in his own way has painted the whole world pristine white again. I like to listen to the snow, too. It, it, you, you think it would be silent, but it's, it's not really silent, is it? It's a little, just a little gentle sound as it covers the ground, as if to say, all is covered, all is new, all is white. I like to look at the snow before anybody walks on it, you know, before the dog has come out with the paws. I don't even like little bird feet in my snow. No, nothing perfect, even, smooth, covered, unbroken, pristine. When it snows, a world that has been dark and dingy and dirty, a world of sinfulness is covered with the grace of God. Snow. An image in Psalm 51, our text today, an image of God's grace. In Psalm 51, David is looking for a snowstorm. He wanted that silent white snow to come into his life, that snow that only God's grace could bring to him. Now, what's going on in David's life that, that creates Psalm 51, we don't know. Some theologians say it's the Bathsheba incident, but we really have no way of knowing that. And, and we don't really have to know. God knows, and David knows, and David confesses, and David longs for the grace, for the snow of God. Look at verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter 
than snow. Now, those of you who wear sunglasses, for whatever reason, I've never been much of a sunglass wearer, but those of you who wear sunglasses in the summertime, when it snows, you get them out again. Where are my sunglasses? You go skiing. What do you want? You want some tint to your glasses, to your goggles. You wear sunglasses because snow is a bright white, brighter than the sun in some ways. David is calling out. And as we look at 2019, we join the psalmist in calling out, Lord, come into my stained life and make me clean. Make me like the white of snow. Karen Albert says that there are things in all of our lives, there are things in all of our hearts that leave us convinced that we are somehow, that I am and you are in your own mind, your own heart, that somehow you are unforgivable, that somehow you are the one who is unqualified for the grace of God. That there's something different about you and your sin and your situation, maybe something, a secret sin that happened a long, long time ago. Well, it gives us that unique feeling of just feeling terminally different, doesn't it? That subtle feeling that somehow out of all the people ever walked planet earth that I am the one, that you are the one in your own heart that cannot receive the full cleansing or the grace of God from Calvary. The problem is that refusing to receive God's snowstorm of grace is it leaves us with hearts of stone, doesn't it? As long as we live under the load of shame and condemnation from yesterday's sins or decade-old sins, it thwarts our ability to have full communion with God and God's people we are hamstrung by yesterday's haunting sin. As long as we listen to the lie of Satan that somehow God's grace can't fix this one, or somehow Jesus can't remedy that one. You know, the theological truth of the matter is this. That once we confess our sins before God, it is not our place to decide what, whether, or how much God will forgive. Once we confess our sins to God, it is not our place to decide if forgiveness will take place. The other side of the equation after the confession is God's work, is it not? It's God's choice, and God has already made His choice and communicated His choice in His Word. If God were not willing to forgive sins, then heaven itself would be an empty place. I know, I know it's true that God doesn't know us anything, he doesn't owe us a dime's worth of forgiveness. He doesn't owe us a nickel's worth of grace. 
We've been given a copy of the rule book. We know the commandments. But we have chosen to eat from the tree of death rather than the tree of life. God owes us nothing, but God is willing to give so much. I want us to look at three C's of sin. First of all, in this passage, there's a consciousness of sin. It's that moment when we stop denying to ourselves and openly admit our wrongdoing. The Apostle John has written in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must be conscious of our sins. If we say we have no sin, then we are living in denial. And we are not dwelling in the land of truth. When we pretend we're not sinners, we are liars. It, it is only when we confess that he can forgive. We must be as we stand with our toes hanging over 2019, conscious of our sins. When I share the gospel with children, one of the joys of my job and our staff, they do it as well. I, I've come to realize that we are, and I'm glad to see we had an exception here this morning, that we are raising a generation of children who don't even know the word sin. Sin is a word that is leaving our vocabulary. In fact, a child might say that they have made a mistake. Well, a mistake is not the same as a sin. I, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've, I've committed a lot of sins, and I know the difference. There's, there's a difference. Sin is open rebellion against God. They might use the language of making bad choices. I think that's educational language, that we need to make good choices. That's, that's fine in an educational setting, but in a theological sense, our children need to know that they are sinners. And that they have committed sin. One child with whom I was sharing the gospel communicated it so aptly when she said, defining sin is when we do things our way instead of God's way. That's what she thought sin was, perfect. It's when we choose to do things our way instead of God's way. In fact, in our, 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 our whole culture, there's a redefining and a losing the concept of sin. Our criminals aren't sinners. They are sick. Our politicians don't sin, but they have indiscretions. We do anything we can not to use that word. We have an avalanche of euphemisms when God's word says it is sin. We do things our way instead of his way. Newsweek a few years ago ran an article entitled Pick and Choose Christianity. It says that Christianity is like a buffet where you've all been to these buffets where they have every kind of food under the sun. You know, they have Italian and they have Chinese and they have American and they have Mexican food. 
I have noted that the Italian is not nearly as good, nor is the Mexican. Or it's, it, we do everything, so we do nothing well. But nonetheless, that's the way the buffet works, and you pick and you choose. And Christianity is sort of like that today. And what we have chosen is God's grace, but we have left behind a knowledge and a consciousness of sin. In fact, in this article it said only 50% of people surveyed in America felt that they had ever sinned. 33% said, yes, they might make mistakes, but no, no sin. You see, the problem with losing a consciousness of our sin is if we have no sin, then we need no Savior. If we have no Savior, we have no salvation. We are sinners. We are conscious of our sin, and thus we need a Savior to save us from our sins, and thus we need and find salvation. As I speak with children about sin, I try to get them back to the point. They might talk about sin in general, but I want to talk to them about their sin. And so I'll say something like, oh, sins when we do things our way instead of God's way. Then I'll, I'll say, well, who has sinned? And I'll say, have you sinned? I remember one child, yes, I've sinned. Then I ask them if I've sinned, and quite readily they will agree that I'm a sinner. Yes, pastor, you have sinned. And then I said, well, has your daddy sinned? Oh, yes, my daddy has sinned. And then I said, well, tell me about your mother. Has she sinned? Oh, no, not my mother, the child said. <laughs> That's sweet, isn't it? But then I have to say, you hate to break the news. Even your mama has sinned. All have sinned. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at verse 3. We have to be conscious of that sin. For I know my transgression. Now, transgression is the hardest word for sin. It means open rebellion against God. For I know my transgression. I'm conscious of it, says David. My sin is, verse 3, it is ever before me. Not denying, not hiding, not covering up, but having a consciousness of sin. Well, there's a second C, a, a confession of sin. Confession of sin. Not only a consciousness of our sin, but in this song we see a confession. Presbyterian minister told the story of his first out of seminary, first church. He realized that the church had gotten rid of. They had abolished a general confession of sins as part of their Sunday liturgy. And one of the first things the new pastor wanted to do was to begin each worship service with a confession of sins by the people. And there was a lot of talk, and a lot of people did not want to bring back a confession of sin to the Sunday liturgy because they thought it was just too morbid to talk about sin in church, that they came to church to be lifted up and encouraged. And, well, that didn't seem like like a, a good thing to put back in there. In the heat of the debate in the church, one woman stood up and she said, but I don't have to apologize to God for anything. 
but I don't have to apologize to God for anything. What did she mean by that? The pastor said seminary had not prepared him for an elder. She was an elder in the Presbyterian church who thought she had no sin. Did she mean that she hadn't committed any of the big sins and thus she didn't need to apologize to God that the murder and adultery were not on her sheet and so she was okay? And if so, she would be wrong because in the Sermon on the Mount we learned that our anger is in many ways like murder and our lust in many ways is like adultery. It is things that matters of the heart that matter to God as well. And so should have, she should have been wrong. And, or did she mean that she had sinned against her family or her neighbor, but she had not sinned against God? And if so, she would have been wrong because in this very psalm, the psalmist says, against you, O God, and you alone, look at verse 4, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. First John said it this way, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, not only must we be conscious of our sins, but we must confess our sins. There is no other way to experience the snow white of Psalm 51 without the full confession of sin. You see, guilt is not the same thing as grace. And remorse is not the same thing as repentance. Guilt is not the same thing, feeling guilty for our sin. We can be conscious of it, but that's not receiving God's grace. And being in remorse, kind of wish we hadn't done that, is not the same thing as going to God in confessional repentance. We sometimes have the guilt and remorse, but then we must have the confession to receive the grace and repentance. Not just a consciousness, but a, a confession. Look what David does in verse 4. God, I have sinned against you. I have done this evil in your sight. Verse 4, you are blameless when you judge me, O God. And verse 5, he says, I'm a sinner from way back. I inherited Adam's sin. I was born in sin. He confesses his sin and Verse 17, notice he has a contrite and broken heart. We didn't read verse 17, but notice what he says in verse 17. The sacrifices of God, what God wants about our sin is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We can't stand as stoics when we confess our sin. We might cry to God about our sins. We might laugh out loud about the joy of grace and cleansing. We might groan or fall on our face or shout for joy. But we won't be defensive or angry or proud or bitter because a proud heart has gotten us where we are to start with, hasn't it? 
It is a broken spirit, a contrite heart that God desires from his people. There's a lot in this passage about joy and rejoicing. Give verse 8. Make me to hear the joy and gladness, he says. Let him know the joy of forgiveness. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. With forgiveness comes this joy and relief that our sins are gone. Here's a third C, cleansing from our sins. John Grisham writes in the Testament, the young man was standing in the pulpit praying. His eyes were clenched tightly. His arms were waving gently upward. Nate, the alcoholic attorney, closed his eyes too. He called on God's name. God was waiting for Nate. With both hands, he clenched the back of the pew in front of him. He repeated the list, mumbling softly every weakness and every fall and every affliction that plagued him. He confessed them all. In one long, glorious acknowledgment of failure, he laid himself bare before God. He held nothing back. He unloaded enough burdens to crush any three men. And when he finally finished, Nate had tears in his eyes. And I'm sorry, he whispered to God, please help me. Quickly, the fever left his body. He felt the baggage leave his soul. And with one gentle brush of the hand, his slate was wiped clean. Do you notice how often the word cleanse is used in this passage? Look at verse 2. Wash me from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, O God. Or verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. The Apostle John has said the same thing, did he not, in 1 John 9? If we say we have no sin, we are a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How far have we gone in mismanaging our lives how much have we messed up our marriages? How far have we ruined our reputations? How far have we moved from the Father? As we look at a new year, the call from Christ this morning is a consciousness of sin, a confession of sin, and a forgiveness for our sin. We all kind of go through life carrying a lot of baggage, don't we? We store up sin for years, sometimes even for decades, and we just tote it around in life. Yesterday, we cleaned out our pantry. Do you know what's in your pantry? <laughs> just wanted to start 2019 with no food that was dated back to 1999. Just got it all out. There were some green things in there. 
Maybe as we start a new year, we need to clean out our hearts too. Maybe we carry around some old sin. Maybe we got some sin in our life. It's 10 years old, 15 years old. Satan keeps telling us about that old sin. And God says, Jesus already died for that one. Are you going to lug that around the rest of your life? Oh, we got our bags full, don't we? If I keep pulling them out, they're going to get, I like this small one better. That, what I did wasn't so bad. But they get bigger and bigger if I keep pulling them out of the bag. And for some reason, despite all of God's grace and forgiveness, we want to carry that around. Lug it around. What if you could start 2019 and that could be gone? Not because of you, but because of this. Close your eyes, look at your own heart. Oh God, this morning as we stand at the threshold of a new year, we want Satan to shake because we are honest about our sins. We confess them. Don't look into the life of your spouse, your child. Your sibling, look into your own heart. Oh God, we join David this morning. We're honest with you. Against you and you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your side. Oh God, this morning we will not be burdened by Satan anymore. We will take up all that baggage, all those stones in our heart and, and drag them to Calvary and leave them at the foot of the cross. There are people watching on television, people in this room, that Satan has been haunting you with old stuff because you won't carry it to the cross and leave it. The beginning of this new year, we cleanse our hearts with the grace of God. We leave this service a forgiven people. Amen.